Hello and welcome to the GDS podcast. I'm Sarah Stewart. I'm a senior writer at the Government Digital Service. We're recording this podcast on location in the office of today's guest. Oliver Dowden became Minister for Implementation in January 2018. With this promotion came responsibility for digital government. One year on, we'll talk about his year in office, his current focus and the future, in particular innovation. Minister, welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me on. Now, most people can imagine what a studio looks like, but not many people would know what a minister's office looks like. So can you help set the scene? Where exactly are we? Well, I'm very fortunate with this ministerial office. It's the sort of ministerial office that people imagine a minister to have. It's actually overlooking um, Horse Guards Parade, so you can see where the Trooping of the Colour happens. And it's one of those classic sort of um, 18th century buildings with a very high ceiling. So it's a very pleasant place to work. I'm very privileged to have an office like this. And we're right in the middle of Whitehall as well. So we're really at the centre of government. Yes, completely. We're number 70 Whitehall. So we are uh, next door to 10 Downing Street and to the Treasury Building. Parliament is diagonally opposite. And it's in the Cabinet Office. The Cabinet Office is really the heart of the government machine. Uh, it's kind of like the government's HQ. It brings brings different parts of government to work together. It coordinates, it cajoles. Uh, you know, we try to facilitate things working across the whole of government. Mm-hmm. And one example of this is the government digital service, how we um, ensure that digital transformation happens across government, how we have the same standards across government, how we embrace emergent technologies in government. It is a really fantastic place from which to operate. So just before we start, I take it that the portrait of Pitt the Younger on your wall isn't from your personal collection? Uh, No, sadly, sadly it's not. And I'm certainly not trying to send any message with Pitt the Younger behind me. I I, I look at Pitt the Younger and think uh, how little I have achieved given that he, I think, became Prime Minister in the... Uh, his twenties, uh, although I think he he perhaps died when he was about my age or shortly uh, afterwards. Well, at great risk to my reputation, I'm going to venture some 18th century political trivia. I believe it was Pitt the Younger who shaped the role of Prime Minister into one of a coordinator of government departments. So this is my convenient segue into asking you how it feels to be a coordinator of a government department. Well. I work to uh, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, David Liddington, so I suppose he's the ultimate uh, coordinator of my uh, government department in uh, which I serve as a minister. But certainly an awful lot of what I do as a minister is coordination. So whether that is the functional agenda that works across government, so the coordination of a common government estates policy, uh, coordination of uh, common government HR, common government commercial uh, relationships, and common government digital practices. All of this is about trying to move from a situation where you have in each individual government department, you have it uh, a completely separate commercial team, a completely separate estates team, a completely separate HR team. So actually, in most government departments, they have a lot in common. So why don't we try and work together for the, the common good and, um, and harness our uh, combined uh, powers, as it were? And it also fits into another part of my brief, which is implementation. Um, I'm the Minister for Implementation. People usually ask, well, what does that actually mean? How did you get that title? Is that something you select yourself or...? It was the Prime Minister. So when the Prime Minister um, appointed me uh, at the beginning of last year, she said, look, one of the big challenges we have in government um, is it's... uh, the easiest thing is for politicians to make promises. It's harder, particularly at the moment, in the hung parliament to get legislation through parliament to make it happen. 
But then how do you actually ensure that the delivery happens on the ground? Um, and what, what can we do as a cabinet office, as ministers, to try and coordinate uh, the delivery on the ground and to deal with problems when delivery isn't happening in the way that we want? So that's the essence of um, the implementation role, trying to unblock those problems, trying to ensure that we're on track to deliver the things that the public elected us to do. Um, and also I'm aided in that by the fact that I have um, oversight of all the government uh, functions. So uh, I, I can use the sort of mechanisms we have into our procurement relationships through commercial, our um, uh, digital uh, relationships through the, the digital team to try and get that, that broader picture of how government works. So was there anything in your background that prepared you for your role? How did you end up here? Well, it depends where you want to begin with the um, with the journey. Um, I mean, I, I went to uh, my local comprehensive um, school and from there uh, I did quite well academically. Um, and I thought, uh, you know, I did quite well academically. Well, what, what do you do if you get good grades? I fancy, could I be a, maybe a doctor, a lawyer or a teacher or maybe an accountant those are the only three sort of things I could think of so I thought well uh, law sounds being a lawyer sounds quite interesting so I applied and was fortunate enough to win a, a place to um, study law at um, Cambridge and I, I studied law I didn't um, I didn't find it the most <laughs> um, exciting and enjoyable thing to do but um, I, I got offered uh, a, a place a training contract with a with a city firm but um I wasn't so sure about it, so I decided to try and do something different. So I actually um, worked in Japan teaching for a year in rural oh, Japan, wow. which was a, a fascinating um, experience. A very, very rural Japan. I was uh, a long way from any other English speakers, and I didn't actually speak a word of English of Japanese, Japanese. <laughs> when I arrived. Uh, so I sort of had to learn my Japanese from a, a book, but it was it was a, a fascinating um, experience. I came back, um, I completed my my legal training, but I realised very rapidly that uh, mm-hmm. law wasn't um, for me. And after a, a few different uh, jobs, I kind of got into um, advisory work, and um, from there found out about an opportunity to work for the Conservative Party. Uh, I've always been a, a Conservative, but never thought uh, sort of politics as being something that I'd actually do for my my main job. Um, I worked on the 2005 um, election campaign, and uh, I got to know David Cameron. Uh, and when he became leader of the the Conservative Party, um, I ended up working for him on the the 2010 um, general election campaign. And uh, he asked me to go into to number 10 um, initially as a political advisor and then deputy chief of staff in, in Downing Street. And uh, I genuinely thought when the 2015 election came round, I'll, I'll leave after that. And then essentially my home seat, uh, the, the incumbent uh, member of parliament was retiring from the home, my home seat. <laughs> And uh, eventually, uh, after lots of sort of deliberating and discussing it with my family, uh, I thought I regret not, uh, you know, seizing the opportunity and having the privilege of representing uh, an area that I knew so well. And I was fortunate enough to be selected as a candidate and elected as Member of Parliament in uh, 2015. And then uh, fortunate enough to be appointed as a minister uh, in the government by by the Prime Minister at the beginning of, of 2018. 
I mean, I think in terms of what's, what's, what's shaped me and helped me in this, I think have, having exposure to lots of different uh, people from lots of different backgrounds, whether that's, uh, you know, a complete culture shock of uh, uh, teaching in rural Japan <laughs> or... Um, I certainly don't come from a, a political family or a family that's having any experience in sort of government. So you certainly get a different perspective there in terms of seeing things from the the, the outside. And that's certainly um, given me in my, my wider uh, ministerial role a passion for ensuring that we have genuine diversity both in the civil service and in public appointments. Because I really think that if you get a group of people around the table who have different uh, experiences whether that's culture education gender ethnic background those different experiences coming together helps you make better decisions and it strengthens decision making and also i think it's morally incumbent on government to for the country to be governed by people who represent the country as a as a whole so i'd like to know what your very first job was my my very first job was actually working in um a warehouse um in dunstable which is uh, just uh, outside of uh, luton in in bedfordshire and it was an import export uh, business and i spent many uh holidays and and summers and so on particularly two tasks i remember um respraying faulty produce that, that, that came in and then and wiring lamps I wired lots and lots of, uh, of lamps during those years and then boxing and, and packing and sending them on but it was a relatively small organization and our duties extended to everything including uh, cleaning and you know, the, the whole the whole gambit so the seeds for technology were sown actually at a very early age yeah, the practical application yeah. of, of, of technology definitely so you were David Cameron's Deputy Chief of Staff, so you were around during the creation of the Government Digital yes. Service. How does it feel to go from witnessing the creation of an organisation to being the minister responsible for it in quite a short period of time? I mean, I don't, I don't want to overplay my hand in the, the creation of the, the Government Digital Service. I pay real tribute to um, Francis Maud, who was the, the minister that, that drove the creation of this. And you know, in number 10, we were very supportive of it. And I think what what Francis did uh, fantastically with the government digital service was to seize the opportunity of creating something that sits across the the whole of government, drives digital transformation. And he took some very bold decisions. Uh, he wasn't afraid to to break things, as it were, to to drive the digital transformation. And he really got uh, the government digital service established and established the UK as a, a world leader in this space. So I kind of had a sense of the the origins of the government digital service, certainly coming in as one of the ministers responsible for it, reporting to um, David Liddington. But I think there's more we can do to be telling the story of how much uh, GDS has achieved and how much it is currently doing. So for example, if you look at government as a platform, the creation of uh, gov.uk uh, that's a common platform for all of government, bring together disparate areas of government activity, which now literally has billions of hits every year. Uh, we're pioneering things like uh, gov.notify, gov.pay. Again, all of this is trying to do thing, two things. First of all, to move away from individual departments to the common government experience. I think most people just want their government to go somewhere and know what get government to do something for them. So removing those kind of artificial 
boundaries. Uh, but secondly, continuing this push about how we we drive the best uh, innovation and disruption, because it's really the, the tech revolution is driven by disruption. And it's that's quite a challenge for government to, to cope with that. But we have to keep on, on pushing because otherwise we'll find a government falling behind the, the, the rest of the economy. So what's the current focus for digital government at the moment? Well, I think it's a number of things. First of all, it is uh, continuing and driving the end-to-end digitization of government services. So uh, we need to, um, almost all government services now have an initial digital interface, but it's not the case that all government services are digitized all the way through. Often there are mechanical back office um, functions that slow things down and we're not taking the the best advantage of the use of tech there. So that, that is the kind of, that digital transformation sits at the core. Uh, it's also creating uh, commonalities across government, so continuing to drive the government as a platform and to continue to develop products such as gov.uk, gov.notify and so on. Um, it's about uh, driving up training and understanding, not just to people in the digital profession, but wider mm-hmm. policymakers so they understand the potential. And it's also about um, seeing how we can apply the latest uh, technology and GDS being a, a guide and a leader for departments in how they can, can embrace that new technology. So as you've alluded to, your brief is very varied. How do you focus your time? Well, to a certain extent, they, they complement um, one another. So uh, if you take, for example, um, emergent uh, technology, I'm very keen for the government to embrace emergent technology, to use the opportunities that are there to help uh, transform uh, the service that citizens receive and <clears throat> do so in a more efficient way. Uh, that kind of then links in to how we uh, deliver and how we achieve implementation, but it also links into the commercial part of my brief because a lot of that has to be procured from the the private sector. So I, I tend to think of it more in terms of where where can I uh, really focus my efforts. But an area that really interests me, and I think we've got huge potential, uh, is in relation to GovTech and to uh, innovative, uh, innovative technologies and government digital transformation. And I think for a, a number of reasons. I think, first of all, it's one of those few areas where you can say, hand on heart, if we get this right, we can deliver more for less and we can deliver a better outcome for citizens. That's, that's pretty unusual across um, different areas of government. The second reason is that we have a wonderful tech sector in this country. And actually, if we can prove that tech works to deliver better outcomes for people in the UK government, it unlocks opportunities for tech companies to apply that uh, around the world. I think thirdly, there's a, in terms of the wider implementation role, um, if you think about how uh, people's experience of consuming in the private sector has changed enormously in the past um, 10 or 20 years through disruptive technologies, whether that's uh, not uh, recommending any particular company, but the say the way Amazon has transformed uh, the shopping and consumer experience, Airbnb in relation to accommodation, uh, Spotify uh, and others in relation to the consumption of music. Uh, all those kind of disruptions are making um, products more easily available, often more cheaply available, um, 
and uh, more readily accessible in general. I think we should be aspiring to do the same thing in respect to public services. And I think if we fail to do that in respect to public services, in years to come, people will begin to draw an unfavourable contrast between how they uh, consume services in the public sector versus how they do so in the private sector. So what exactly is standing in our way in terms of government making progress? There there are areas of very, very good practice um, across different bits of government. So, for example, um, HMRC has done a lot of work um, in terms of embracing repeat robotic um, processes. Similarly, DWP, if you look at, for example, the government uh, GovTech Challenge, this is a fund to uh, use uh, new and emergent technologies. We've been doing some fantastic stuff around AI and geospatial data. But it's not a consistent picture. So I think one of the things I'm trying to do uh, in the production of um, an emergent technology strategy is to try and draw out the best of what government's doing, showcase it, Mm -hmm. learn what we did to make that work well so that those lessons can be applied elsewhere in government. But it links into other areas as well, how we procure those kind of things from the private sector, how we get the the best of innovation from the private sector. And it goes to things like um, the culture of government. So uh, we want to make sure that uh, people feel empowered to be able to take proportionate risks. Mm-hmm. And I think one, you're not going to get innovation without taking risks. And sometimes those risks will go wrong. It is okay to fail mm-hmm. uh, if you're helping to drive that innovation. So trying to achieve that, that cultural change as well. Why do we need a strategy? And it's not about government sticking a finger in the air and saying, we want, we want to go for blockchain because it's the, the, the technology of the moment. It's just thinking how we, how we can make use of that. So that, that kind of starts with the ball rolling. But when you start the ball rolling about how do you think you can uh, use emergent technology, um, that opens up wider questions, as I said, around procurement, around the culture of government. So it's sort of broadened in, into those, those different areas. And actually, it's been very interesting in framing this strategy uh, rather than us sort of sitting in Whitehall with a few uh, policy officials yeah. trying to come up with a policy, we've tried to go out there and talk to people. So I've held events uh, in different parts of the country. Indeed, I was also attending an event in, in Paris where we talked about this as well, which was uh, hosted, well, variously attended by both the, um, the President of France and the Prime Minister of Canada, which gives you some sort of indication of the seriousness that all governments are taking. But we've also been to um, Edinburgh, uh, to different parts of the uh, of England and the rest of the United Kingdom. And you get consistent messages coming through. and. Uh, those those relate to um, how we need to change the culture of government to um, embrace new technologies, how we need to change the way we buy in um, technologies, how we need to improve skills. So hopefully what people will see in this strategy when it's produced are sensible steps to help us do that. I'm not going promising that this is going to be the end point, clearly mm-hmm. it won't be, but hopefully it'll be some helpful signposts along the route. So in that um, period of engagement, was there anything that really stood out to you, any aha moments that you'd learned from any of the academics or the practitioners or tech leaders in the field? I think all roads lead back to data. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly the case that, that, that data really, it really feels to me that um, this year and next year, 
is is the moment where we move from seeing the potential of data that's been talked about a lot to actually it's starting to to lead to some some big um, breakthroughs in how we, <laughs> we do things differently. And actually, I think you're starting to see it in the the health sector already. And I think that it it strikes me that it's a very exciting time. But in order to unlock that, there's a lot of work to be done. For example, the government holds a huge amount of data, but often that data um, is not accessible. So we need to look at how we make it more accessible. And we also need to look at um, how we make people not just who are the sort of tech experts understand the potential, but all policy makers need to under, understand the potential of the, the data that they hold. So I think if there was one aha moment when I thought that this is something we could really go big on, that that is probably it. If I could just move on to talk to you about um, your work with SMEs and the GovTech sector, you said previously that innovation relies on, or successful innovation relies on a good relationship with the private sector. Why can't government go it alone? Well, I think we have we have so many opportunities out there. If you look at the kind of interesting, innovative stuff that is going on with SMEs, not just SMEs, large companies as well, they're doing interesting stuff with emergent technologies. They're doing interesting stuff with data. The idea that government is going to have all the answers or can creatism have all the answers. We're, if, if we don't em- embrace the what's going on in the private sector, we're missing out on a huge amount of of knowledge and creativity. And I think the best way to proceed is to work in, in partnerships. So there will be some instances, and GDS does this a lot, GDS does stuff in-house, but equally we buy in um, skills and knowledge. And I think that then reinforces um, a healthy mixed market economy whereby we create opportunities for the private sector. The private sector um, manages to, to grow through having those opportunities, but we, we get lots of ideas and intellectual property from the private sector. And I think that enriches both both sides of the economy in the, the UK and helps strengthen our position as a, as a global digital leader. How are you making, or how is government making it easier for the private sector and the public sector to collaborate? We've already made a good start with um, GovTech, which is a £20 million fund announced by the uh, Treasury just last year that has been run through uh, Cabinet Office and, um, and the Government Digital Service. Uh, we've had three rounds of challenges doing lots of um, interesting, um, t- taking lots of interesting uh, challenges and using emergent technologies to address them. And what GovTech has done is to try and sort of soften the barrier between um, government and the private sector through procurement. Because I think too often uh, government decides what it wants then goes out to market with a very prescriptive solution uh, and quite a sort of uh, rigid procurement process. Having the opportunity to have a competition where you have different stages, so different people pitch into what the solution might look like is one of the things we managed to do with GovTech. And it, it forms part of a pattern that I hope we can uh, add to whereby we have the, um, the opportunity for, for soft engagement in procurement before it actually happens. We can get the ideas from the, the private sector as to what we're after and how we procure it. So there is life for digital government beyond the end of the government transformation strategy. There'll always be work to do. Oh, there'll always be, be work to do. Um, I don't think uh, the, 
digital transformation of um, society and the economy as a whole is going to end any time <laughs> soon and government has to keep, keep up with it. Um, and of course, we're supporting EU exit as well. GDS is playing a, an important yes. role there. Um, do you think that um, meeting the short-term needs of EU exit will be in any way compromised or, or, or will compromise the longer-term ambitions for government transformation? Or indeed, do you think it will accelerate it? I think it's more likely to be the latter. Uh, I think there are, there are big opportunities um, created by the need to adapt to, um, to Brexit. And certainly necessity can often drive innovation. And I think that's one of the, the core things that GDS is doing. You mentioned the principles of um, GDS and indeed other departments who are undergoing digital transformation. And the first principle is users first. And I suppose as a constituency MP, you're doing user research all the time. You're listening to what people want and wanting to deliver on those things. How does that play into your, your role as a minister? How does what they say translate? I think the number one thing is that most people care about outcomes, not processes. And I think what GDS is doing is increasingly shifting that focus towards the output regardless of the different government processes. So for example, we're looking at how you can just type in learn to drive and it cuts across the different parts of government that help you achieve that or start your own business or move house, all those kind of things. That's, that's what citizens are, are, are looking for. And I think that's, that will be an increasing trend in what we're doing. And I think that also links into how you interface as well. Um, depending on uh, almost precisely how old you are, you, you, you uh, relate to digital in different ways. And increasingly, there's use of uh, voice technology, um, accessing um, uh, technology through all different mediums. We need to make sure we're, we're keeping up with that. You mentioned visiting the GovTech um, summit in Paris. Do you keep an eye on what other governments are doing in the innovation space? Is there any country in particular that's piquing your interest? Well, I think we're fortunate to be quite ahead of the curve uh, in the, the, the UK. But I'm always conscious of, of who's playing catch up. And you know, it's interesting all around the world people are starting to do this. So Singapore have made it a huge priority. Um, hopefully I'm going to Denmark uh, later this month, where again, the government there is uh, really committed to digital transformation. Everyone knows about Estonia as well, that we are, was, was the leader, clearly Estonia is slightly different. Um, but Canada is doing a, a lot of work. I was talking to the High Commissioner about that just the other day. So there is definitely, um, I wouldn't say a, a race, because I think we're all trying to get to the, the same endpoint. but I want to make sure that, that the UK is at the forefront of doing that. Yes, I spy, uh, what do they say? Uh, rising tide lifts all ships. Exactly. When you were on your travels and conducting your engagement to inform the strategy, was there anyone in particular that you found particularly interesting or that really helped shape your understanding? Yes, there's, I mean, there's lots of um, examples. Uh, I think uh, what's being done with CivTech in Scotland is, is very interesting. Uh, we've kind of done a similar thing to, uh, to it with GovTech, but I think there are definitely lessons that we can uh, learn from there. Uh, you can't help but be impressed by some of the um, tech applications, um, particularly in relation to um, virtual reality. That's some way down the line for government, but it is certainly something that makes you think. And just as we draw to a close, what have been the high points of your year 
Well, it was. I must say, it was a, a tremendous privilege to to be in Paris, and there was a, a you know, President Macron uh, hosted us for a, a lunch at the uh, the Elysee Palace, where we were able to talk about this on a, a pan-European level. That brought home to me how this is a, an exciting and um, emergent trend. But also looking in terms of the the practical application, seeing how the use of technology has been transforming. Uh, people's lives and that's what we're all in government for in the end making people's lives better and there was one more thing the podcast of course oh of course (laughs) of course but you you asked up till now the podcast is ongoing (laughs) um well that brings us to the end of today's podcast thank you so much for joining us it's been really interesting pleasure thank you thank you very much for listening i hope you enjoyed it and that you'll listen again next month when we talk to more interesting people about interesting things in the world of digital government Until then, farewell.